So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. When Morgan Seta was growing up outside of Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories, there were certain things she just wasn't allowed to do. We were just told a lot of don't eat the berries, don't swim in these lakes, don't hunt on these trails. We don't go to specific areas. We make sure we're hunting and ice fishing a certain distance away from Yellowknife. My name is Morgan Seta. I am a member of the Yellowknife Zene First Nation. I grew up in Yellowknife and spent the first 10 years of my life pretty much in and around Dilo, which is the Yellowknife Zene First Nations community. There's a good reason Morgan and other Yellowknife Zene children were told not to eat the berries and to stay away from certain areas. The giant mine. My mom's home in our community in Dilo is the second house in from the lake. So when we step out her front door, we can literally see the site that was Giant Mine. So my growing memory has been with Giant Mine kind of looming over Yellowknife. It definitely feels haunted, especially when you live there. It's wild and it's it's very ominous. The Giant Mine was a gold mine that operated for more than half a century. And though it closed in 2004, the mine still affects the Yellowknife's Dene people every day. That's because for years, the mine had been poisoning the local environment with arsenic. From a Dene perspective, we were just always taught that the surrounding lands had been really poisoned and tarnished by the presence of the mine and just how much arsenic was present and how much we were not being protected by federal and territorial governments. The giant mine is one of the main reasons that Yellowknife exists in the form it does today. The mine provided jobs for people in the local community and brought many Southerners to settle up north. But Giant Mine has been the cause of so much despair over the years. There have been poisonings, mass murders, and environmental devastation. Today, we're going to bring you three stories about this haunted place. The first, about the damage done when the mine first opened. Then, the bloodiest strike in Canadian history. And finally, a look at why people might still be talking about giant mine in a thousand years. (laughs) 
the giant mine has loomed over the last 70 years of Yellowknife history. It brought jobs and settlers to the Northwest Territories, but it's also been a singular source of suffering for people in the region. The Yellowknife's Diné still call it the giant monster. Now that the mine has been closed for almost two decades, one question still remains. Was any of this worth it? I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. The Yellowknife's Dene have lived around modern-day Yellowknife since time immemorial, relying on the land to provide them with everything they needed. But in the early 20th century, prospectors came in search of gold. The gold finds at Yellowknife were very much the foundation of the city. My name's Arne Keeling. I'm a geographer here at Memorial University in St. John's. Arne Keeling is the co-founder of the Toxic Legacies Project, which focuses on giant mine. Gold exploration in the region, you know, some have even traced it back to Klondike prospectors passing through the region and, and identifying some likely looking areas, but nothing sort of really definitive was established. Later, prospectors were attracted to the area from sites further north where radium and uranium mining was going on at Port Radium. So it was actually prospectors coming down from the north who were some of the more important folks searching for gold in the North Great Slave Lake area, interacting with fur traders and others who were in the region. In the 1930s, significant gold deposits were discovered in the area, bringing in a flood of settlers. So extremely rapidly, the Yellowknife's Dene people found their territories really invaded by thousands of prospectors setting up camps on the shores of Yellowknife Bay, cutting trees, digging trenches, and generally sort of disrupting people's traditional settlements and land use in the area. And again, all these kinds of things were being done in the 1930s with absolutely no consultation, with no recognition of the treaty rights in terms of access to land and resources of Dene people. Eventually, the city of Yellowknife grew up around the gold deposits, two of which turned out to be significant. There was Con Mine and then Giant Mine. Giant Mine began production in 1948, and immediately, it became a catastrophe for the Yellowknife's Dene. That's not only because the mine was territory that was supposed to be reserved for the Yellowknife's Dene, but because the gold deposits in the area were mixed together with significant amounts of arsenic. And in the case of the Giant Mine deposits and in the case of some of the con deposits, there was an awful lot of arsenic in the rock. My name is John Sandlas, and I'm a history professor at Memorial University in St. John's. John is also a co-founder of the Toxic Legacies Project. In order to get at the gold that was trapped in the ore, the rock had to be roasted at extremely high temperatures. There were really two byproducts from that, and one was sulfur dioxide, which can have dramatic impacts on vegetation, and a lot of people in the area remember the smell, the egg-like sulfur smell coming from the mine. And also the other product was arsenic trioxide, which would come up the smokestack from the roasting facilities as a gas, 
And then as soon as it would hit the air, it would condense into particulate matter. So it's basically kind of like a, a dust plume that would come out of the stack and it would, it would spread far and wide in the Yellowknife area. Arsenic trioxide is odorless, tasteless, and extremely deadly. And it never degrades. So I think you can see why a bunch of arsenic trioxide blanketing an area where people and wildlife live is a very, very bad thing. Almost all of the ore at Giant Mine had to be roasted. And originally, there were no pollution controls on either of these roasting facilities. So there was an awful lot of arsenic dust going up into the air, and there was an awful lot of it, really thousands of pounds a day, that was being spread into the local environment. And almost immediately, this arsenic pollution had tragic consequences. Here's Arne Keeling again. The arsenic is going up the stack and, of course, condensing into this dust, which would then fall onto the lands and waters based on the prevailing winds around the giant mine roaster stack. Now, in the summertime or the springtime, much of that might get washed away in rains, etc. But in the wintertime, this material would actually accumulate in the snow. It wouldn't be washed away. Over the winter, the arsenic would build up in the water. And when the spring snowmelt came, it would all be released at once. At that time, there was no municipal water service provided to the Yellowknives Dene settlement that's on Latham Island, now known as Dilo, which is right across Back Bay from the giant mine complex. But people in this settlement relied on snowmelt water, oftentimes for their own water consumption. And so it appears that what happened was that a child drank some of the snowmelt water in April 1951 and, and perished from acute toxicity from arsenic. Frank Abel was only two years old when he was killed by the arsenic coming out of the giant mine smokestack. The only form of justice his family got for the loss of their child was a $750 payment. Morgan Seta has heard stories from her community about children dying from arsenic poisoning in those first years that giant mine was active. It's really devastating to hear the stories that were kind of like ignored at the time of small children dying children like three four five years old on record i think they believe they only have one official death whereas elders say there was at least three children who passed away here's john sandlos for a long time the yellow nice dene have said that arsenic pollution when it really started to ramp up from the mine that air pollution from the roasting facility that a child died from drinking contaminated water in fact they say that more than one child died and a lot of people in the settler community didn't believe them or were sort of indifferent to that. Despite the fact that the owners of Giant Mine and the federal government knew about the arsenic poisonings, little was done at first. Giant was allowed to continue to operate as normally until October of 1951 when the first pollution control equipment was put on the stack. The government began to put out notices telling people not to drink the snowmelt water. There were also ads placed in the News of the North newspaper, but, you know, these signs and notices are in English. It's not clear that they were able to actually reach the community that they were intended to warn and to protect. They never made it accessible to the Dene. It was always English. It was never in Willaday, in, in Plicho, and anything that the locals spoke. Animals began to die, including an entire herd of cattle. The federal government's Health and Welfare Department sent a researcher to investigate, 
and they soon realized that even with additional safety measures that captured much of the arsenic before it could get in the air, not all of it could be contained. And the department came to believe that Giant Mine was simply too dangerous to operate. There was support for that position right up to the deputy minister level in health and welfare. But not all parts of the federal government agreed. Northern Affairs felt the economic cost and the cost to jobs would be too much. And so they kept the mine going, as I indicated, even after a child had died. And there was a stunning meeting where National Health and Welfare basically says, we can't support this and we want it on the record and we want it to be minuted that we don't support this. And if there's any more sickness or death, it's not on our hands. They said that they would continue to support Northern Affairs with research and monitoring of arsenic pollution in the area, but they wanted nothing to do with making policy around pollution and how to handle it in the area anymore. It was felt like that this essentially was, was experimenting on the local population, that the government knew that the mine was pumping out raw arsenic pollution and had no idea what the impacts would be both in the short term and the long term, but they kept doing it. While those political battles were playing out within the federal government, the people most affected by these decisions, whose children were literally dying, didn't get a say. So immediately there was kind of this secrecy between Ottawa and Yellowknife where Ottawa was like, no, we're not going to we're not going to tell them. And the first town hall they even had about arsenic was, I believe, in 1966. And someone who was born when the mine opened would have been an adult. They would have had their entire childhood been affected by those thousands of kilograms of arsenic dust that was coming out of the mine every single day. By then, Giant Mine was deeply entrenched in Yellowknife. By that time, a lot of the people were ingrained in this mining society. There were a lot of settlers who had come to Yellowknife and had built families that were multi-generational miners already by the time that they had interviewed people on whether or not they wanted the mine to close. And despite the fact that the mine was on Yellowknife's Denade land, the community got nothing in return. Our chief, Fred Zangris, has said time and time again that the Yellowknife's Denade never saw a penny from the gold mine. Giant mine continued to operate, but by the 1970s, the health effects of arsenic from the mine became a national story. There was enough pollution in Yellowknife Bay and arsenic levels were high enough that the city of Yellowknife actually moved its water intake up to the Yellowknife River, basically upstream of Giant, so that the water system wouldn't be picking up all of that arsenic. And that didn't do too much to help the Yellowknife's Dene. They were having water trucked in by this point, but they had to pay for it. And for people who, many of whom lived at poverty levels, many of them said they still went to the bay and drank from the bay. A report was eventually released linking the arsenic exposure from giant mine to increased cancer rates. A study funded by the Indian Brotherhood of the Northwest Territories and the United Steelworkers found high levels of arsenic in the hair of Yellowknife's Dene children. But that flurry of research and activism didn't do much to the mine's operations. A federal government study concluded that it was only some workers who were endangered by the arsenic and not the rest of the community. It should be understood that they were basing these conclusions on a threshold limit value for arsenic in water that was five times what we consider safe today. In fact, really, we consider that there's no safe level for consuming arsenic trioxide today. After that, Giant Mine drifted away from the national consciousness. 
So things just kept on going, largely the same. The gold ore was still being pulled out of the ground, and the arsenic was still polluting the environment. But the troubles at Giant Mine were only beginning, and it would once again become one of the biggest stories in the country during one horrible day in 1992. Lee Selick came to Yellowknife in 1982, and Giant Mine was unavoidable. The mine was a huge part of the town at that time. It was one of the largest employers. It is on the way out to our sort of cottage country, lake country here, and so you would pass by it all the time. Lee Selick is a former journalist and researcher and the co-author of a book about Giant Mine called Dying for Gold, The True Story of the Giant Mine Murders. Lee was aware of some of the pollution issues early on, but he really began to report on Giant Mine when it was bought by Royal Oak, an American company led by a woman named Peggy Whitty. Well, Peggy Whitty was uh, from Nevada, and uh, she had done her metallurgy and engineering schools uh, in the States. Whitty stood out in a number of ways in the world of Canadian mining. For one, she was only 36 years old when her company bought Giant Mine. And of course, she was a woman. Women CEOs were not exactly common in 1990 in the mining industry. And, you know, she was brash and could be charming when she felt like it. And she had something to prove, as was typical of her life. And she didn't like to take no for an answer, for sure. What characterized her the most was her very American way of doing business, which very quickly brought her into conflict with the workers at Giant Mine. The miners at Giant well understood the dangers of working underground. For the uninitiated, it's quite an eerie environment. Obviously, it's highly physical work. You're working in the dark. And believe me, it is dark. You turn the lights out down there, and it's the darkest dark you've ever seen in your life. Things began to change when Peggy Whitty and Royal Oak came to town in 1990. The price of gold had fallen, and Royal Oak had taken on a number of loans in order to buy the mine. So in order to turn a profit, they had to cut costs significantly. They began by firing staff at the mine's headquarters in Toronto. Then they started to dismiss managers at the mine site itself and bring in their own people, many of whom were Americans that shared Witty's hard-nosed approach to labor issues. And that's where the trouble really started. You had a lot of newcomers to the mine. And they wanted things done their way, and they're going to tell you so in no uncertain terms. And the workers at the mine were kind of going, yeah, you know, we've heard that stuff before. The new managers introduced a new disciplinary system that made it much easier to fire miners. And it wasn't long before workers, especially people influential in the union, felt like they were being targeted, especially if they reported safety issues in the mine. In 1991, a Royal Oak geologist was killed during a rockfall. It was just tragic and needless loss. But from the miner's perspective here, it was like, you know what? These owners, we help to keep things in line, and we're a lot more concerned about our safety than they are. Collective bargaining between the union and the company was tense from the start. It was a very difficult negotiation, and there was strain on both sides. A tentative agreement was reached, but it made deep concessions on behalf of workers. And there was so much distrust of the company that it was a very, very hard sell for the union bargaining committee. 
On the day of the ratification vote, Peggy Whitty sent a letter to the workers where she threatened to shut down the mine if they didn't approve the deal. Those kinds of threats didn't sit well with the miners. Over 80% of the union members voted no. And in May of 1992, the Westray mine disaster, which you heard about on our last episode, killed 26 miners in Nova Scotia. And that just hardened the resolve of the workers to not bend on issues of safety. A strike was beginning to look inevitable. But Royal Oak made it clear that if there was labor action, they were going to play hardball. Shift bosses and stuff were telling workers like, hey, you know, they're going to bring in strike breakers. They mean it. You better take this agreement or else, you know, you'll have scabs in your mind. That was absolutely unheard of. It had not been done, I think, in a Canadian mine since the 50s. I think that when those sort of threats were being made during the kind of negotiation phase, that the unionists probably didn't believe it. You guys want to talk like big boys, but doing this is absolutely craziness. And if you do, mind you, you're going to have a hell of a fight on your hands. On May 22nd, the day before workers would go out on strike, security guards hired by Royal Oak began to illegally lock out the miners and bar them from the mine site. And that's how one of the most vicious labor disputes in Canadian history kicked off. The next day, the union set up pickets outside of all the entrances to Giant Mine. There were lots of people down there. It was kind of a party atmosphere and, and so on in the beginning. And pretty soon, the sort of bravado, you know, emerged. Picketers and security guards exchanged insults and occasionally rocks. But the strikers saved the worst of it for the strike breakers. They were pilloried and called scabs, and there were, you know, derogatory signs on the picket line. And Royal Oak managers tried to provoke picketers. Even though the union had agreed to let mine managers in and out of Giant by taxi, the company sent them in big yellow school buses, hoping that the union members would think that they were scabs and attack the bus. So, you know, you kind of had a bit of a toxic mixture developing right from the beginning that, you know, it could get wild. It wasn't long before the security company that Royal Oak hired quit. They were sick of having rocks thrown at them by the picketers. But the last rock came when Royal Oak insisted that they arm themselves with guns. So the company brought in the Pinkertons. Now, if you're not familiar with the Pinkerton Detective Agency, they are the most infamous corporate paramilitary in North America. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, they were known for union busting, worker intimidation, and murder, all done at the behest of Gilded Age industrialists. They still exist today, and by bringing them to Giant Mine, Peggy Whitty was escalating an already tense situation. Clearly, the style that Peggy Whitty brought to things was more an American, and we're going to show you who are the real miners here, and we're going to show you what, you know, uppity unions get. The use of strikebreakers and the Pinkertons turned Giant Mine from a local labor dispute into a national fight for workers' rights. It wasn't just a battle about the terms of the collective agreement, unfortunately. It became a battle for what is the future of unionism in Canada. And the irony of it is choosing to use a mine as a proxy for that battle in a place where the workers and everybody is used to danger and it's a daily part of their lives was probably a very, very bad choice of locations to have that fight. It wasn't long before things became violent. On June 14th, 
a riot broke out between the picketers, the Pinkertons, and the police at one of the mine entrances. Lee Selleck was there. It was a bit of a melee, just craziness. Like I was ducked down by this tractor trailer so I could take pictures and stuff and not get hit by rocks or anything. The police fired warning shots and tear gas into the crowds. Luckily, no one was killed, but the company used the riot as a justification to fire 38 striking workers, some of whom weren't anywhere near the mine that day. Everybody's positions were actually more entrenched from the union's perspective. It's like, yeah, the cops and the Pinkertons are all against us, and you're trying to take away our rights, and you're scabbing our mine. It just got harder and harder to actually have any middle ground. It was around that time that some of the miners started to sneak onto the mine property to conduct sabotage. There were two men in particular, Al Shearing and Tim Bedker, who led the charge. Shearing and others had gotten around the Pinkertons and been able to enter the mine. And, you know, they left behind graffiti and, you know, scabs go home kind of stuff. They also began to blow up equipment inside the mine. There was also a couple of explosions, you know, in varying degrees of seriousness. I'm the first one being an explosion of the, the satellite dish, which I guess brought those strike breakers, their television entertainment. And the second explosion at, at the vent shaft, the B shaft vent was a, a lot more serious in that that could have impacted the ventilation underground. Despite all these escalations, the federal and territorial governments refused to step in. It was becoming clear that both sides were courting disaster. And on September 18th, disaster struck. It's a day that um, I never forget, and a year doesn't go by that I don't take note of it's September 18th. The story is shockingly familiar. A massive explosion at a Canadian mine. Workers on the job underground. Nine of them killed. It happened this morning at the giant gold mine near Yellowknife. Immediately, there was the memory of Westray. The investigation of today's explosion has barely begun, but already there's one striking difference. The possibility of sabotage. This is one disaster police are convinced was not natural. There was an explosion that went off underground 750 feet below the surface while nine guys were riding a small little rail system on their way to their workplaces. You know, it was more or less an almost unidentifiable carnage beyond, in spite of everything I've seen, including a lot of the pictures later when it went to court, is still hard to really imagine. Having seen the pictures and been in the mine and knowing some of the guys, I have a little bit of a sense but I'm glad I don't have a better sense from having been there. I know enough about it to know that that is an unimaginable, horrible experience. All nine of the miners in that part of the shaft were killed instantly. You know, it happened fast, but what didn't happen fast was all the damage it did to all those families and the community that have felt the, the losses well, the families, once they found out later in the day, it started for them. But those, those losses are still here in Yellowknife. And the whole impact of that day is, you know, there, there's still lots of people that 
feel it. The deaths reverberated through the city. Royal Oak and the RCMP quickly concluded that this wasn't an accident, but the Union was in denial. It's hard to contemplate the notion of a mass murder. I think the Unionists thought, like, man, we are doomed now. We're going to be blamed for this. The police are saying it's a murder. We're going to be blamed for it. And even on the day of the bombing, Peggy Whitty insisted that the mine reopen immediately. Peggy Whitty actually said, you know, those men gave their lives to keep this mine open. And, you know, a lot of people found that pretty offensive because those men were just were going to work for their families. And they were doing so in conditions which they did not like. And so, you know, to say, oh, they died for the company to make money, you know, that, that's not what they were dying for. And they had no intention of dying either. Despite the fact that it was clear that the Pinkertons couldn't keep intruders out of the mine, it was open in less than two weeks. The RCMP drew up a list of suspects. And at the very top were the two men who had been leading the sabotage raids inside the mine, Al Shearing and Tim Bedger. The police knew by that time that Al Shearing and Tim Betker had been responsible for the two other explosions at the satellite dish and the vent shaft, and believed also that they were involved in other incursions into the mine. They really had the most circumstantial of evidence against Shearing and Betker. They raided Tim Betker's house and they found various little things that they thought could have gone into the making of a bomb. They also had a witness, one of the striking miners. Roger Warren. Roger was a crackerjack miner. He and his wife were kind of solid stalwarts, you know, seniors in the, the union community. He certainly looked at the dynamic of this industrial dispute and considered it a travesty against the workers. He was very supportive of the union. Roger had been on the picket line the night before the blast. And when the RCMP questioned him, he said he had seen two suspicious people near a mine entrance. They brought Roger in for interviews and asked him to take two polygraph tests, which both came up inconclusive. He had six or seven interviews by October, mid-October, and uh, the police brought in an accomplished interrogator named Greg McMartin. And according to Lee, McMartin became convinced that Roger Warren was in fact the bomber. So Greg McMartin went at Roger Warren in this interrogation and accused him of it and basically said there was no doubt of it. We know you did it. The question is why, Roger? And we know you're basically a good guy. You would never intentionally do this. So what went wrong? What happened? And it was in a very, very preacher-like, mesmerizing, you know, it went on for hours and hours. It was a mind-numbing, mind-warping affair. Roger was one of the few suspects actually cooperating with the RCMP. Most of the others refused to do multiple interviews. And during the course of the interrogation, Roger's story began to shift, subtly at first. McMartin asked him if someone did want to set up this kind of a bomb, how could it have been done? And Roger answered in the hypothetical. And eventually, after hours and hours and hours of this, he just sort of slid into that that's what he had done. He never really came out and said, yeah, I did this. He just kind of slid into it. It was very strange to hear. Roger Warren was now confessing to one of the worst mass murders in Canadian history, and he was insisting he did it all alone. 
he was charged with the killings. But soon after, Roger Warren recanted his confession and pled not guilty at the trial. He claimed that he had only confessed because the RCMP insisted that a confession could help end the strike. Warren was convicted of nine counts of second-degree murder, but he maintained his innocence for years afterwards. Here's Lee Selleck interviewing Roger Warren for the CBC while he was in prison. 1993 was when you initially confessed to this crime, and then during the trial, you said that you hadn't done it. So which is the true story? The latter is the real story. The, uh, the original was an attempt to, I guess in my mind at the time, to uh, get the strike over with. And uh, I think it was helped along a little bit by slight touch of uh, either mental illness or depression or whatever. And uh, I mean, I can't even explain it to myself, but... And it was like almost like an obsession or a fascination with this, the whole thing. I mean, I don't think I actually uh, ever actually sat down and said, well, I'm going to deceive the police here, you know, and make a false confession. I don't think I, I think that was an on-the-spot decision. But after the association in defense of the wrongly convicted declined to take up his case, in 2004, Roger Warren changed his story again and confessed once more to the bombings. But Lee Selleck still doesn't believe that Roger Warren was telling the full truth about what actually happened at Giant Mine. But there are quite a few things that never really quite added up. And it seems to be in the mining world that those that I've talked to Most people don't think that one person went in and did that. The general theory seems to be, if that was done, it was more than one person. And I suppose, again, it doesn't rule out that Roger Warren was one of those people or that it was somebody else. You know, really, when you get down to it, our conclusions on this are all fairly unreliable. If there is more to the story, we'll likely never know. Roger Warren died in 2019. Giant Mine had closed years earlier in 2004, but its dark legacy still haunts Yellowknife. The final story we're going to tell about Giant Mine is one that's still not over, and it could last for a very, very long time. Here's John Sandlos, the co-founder of the Toxic Legacies Project again. By the 1990s, as the mine is reaching the end of its life, it's having all kinds of financial problems. Even after the strike came to an end in 1993, low gold prices were sending Royal Oak into bankruptcy. And that was a huge problem, not just for Peggy Whitty or Giant Mine workers or Royal Oak shareholders, because all of that arsenic that Giant Mine had been capturing when they were roasting the gold ore was still just sitting there. We're catching it in the stacks before it goes out into the environment, but it doesn't disappear. It's not being destroyed. It's not being transformed into a less toxic form. And so much of it is being produced at Giant, and it's just simply being pumped back under the ground. In total, there were 261,000 tons of arsenic trioxide dust buried under Giant Mine. A spoonful of the stuff is enough to kill a person. The oft-repeated statistic is that there's enough arsenic at Giant Mine to kill everyone in the world many times over. 
the federal government was worried about what to do with it all if the mine closed. But Royal Oak simply pled poverty. The government tried to collect some money up front prior to closures in a kind of trust fund, which is a mechanism that's used today to to deal with remediation issues after a mine's closed. But the money set aside was in the thousands of dollars, barely a dent towards the actual sums needed to deal with the arsenic. When Royal Oak went bankrupt in the late 1990s, another company bought the mine for a few years. But by 2004, Giant Mine was done. It becomes very clear by the mid-2000s that this is going to be essentially a problem for the public to deal with, and in particular, the federal government. And so, again, it's, it's the various iterations of Northern Affairs that gets left with the price tag and with the problem of cleaning up this site. They couldn't just leave all that arsenic there as is. If the pumping system were ever to fail, you're going to have an almost immediate dissolution of arsenic trioxide. It's going to get into the watershed. And that, you know, that's Great Slave Lake being polluted. And that's the Mackenzie watershed. There's enough arsenic there to do some real damage. And that's when they came up with a plan. They'll simply freeze the arsenic underground and keep it there forever. And by forever, I mean forever. We even attended some of the public hearings and people would ask, so how long are you going to have to pump water from the mine? And the government would say, forever. Morgan Seta says that once again, the Yellow Knives Dene were left out of this decision. What's going to happen when climate change happens? What's going to happen when systems fail? Like there's, there was no backup. There was no talking to Yellow Knives Dene elders and asking them, like, what should we do? Even if Yellow Knives Dene elders say, hey, freezing it probably is the best idea. You should at least have those voices backing your project before just going ahead and doing the project or just going ahead and giving the contract to a Calgary or Texas company. The pushback from both the city of Yellowknife and the Yellowknife's Dene was immediate. They were able to force an environmental assessment of the remediation project. And based on lengthy public hearings, impassioned public hearings, where people spoke eloquently and powerfully about their fears for this forever solution and about the debt that we were creating towards future generations, the government did respond and has now adopted a 100-year time span for the Giant Mine Remediation Project. But the problem is that they don't know what to do with the arsenic trioxide. You don't want to move it because that risks it getting into the local environment. We don't have a method to neutralize it. We just have a century to try to figure it all out. There are very few projects that adopt a 100-year time frame. I guess maybe none of us will be around for the final solution being discovered. Even pieces of the mine itself have to be contained in shipping containers because they're so contaminated with arsenic. It's just got to stay in these shipping containers and hopefully in the future someone will know what to do with them. And with climate change happening right now, the dangers associated with all that arsenic have never been clearer. If anything bad were to happen, the effects are going to be felt in northern Alberta. They're going to be felt in all of the territories in our Arctic. But of course, the first people to feel those effects will be the ones who have had to deal with the fallout from giant mine from the beginning, the Yellow Knives Dene. Because when and if something happens to giant mine, it will affect my community, the community I grew up in, If I'm there, who knows what would happen? If I'm not there, that's my entire family. That's my ancestral homelands. 
that will never look the same. Over the last few years, the Yellow Knives Diné have been publicly petitioning the House of Commons for an apology, for compensation, and for a role in the remediation project. Morgan Seta was at the forefront of that campaign, pushing it on social media. The petition was widely successful. It was about over 30,000 signatures, I believe, and it was one of the most signed petitions in House of Commons history. And this summer, the Yellow Knives Diné and the federal government came to an agreement. But the fight isn't over. Even if the government comes through on their commitments, and even if they're able to find a solution in the next hundred years for what to do about that arsenic underground, the giant mine itself will be a contaminated, dangerous place for thousands of years. Here's Arne Keeling again. Through our research on toxic sites, etc., we found a number of different examples of sites where material was buried underground or stored in some kind of facility, and then very quickly forgotten, only to be unearthed accidentally in even 50 years. It's easy for societies to forget. And Yellow and Ice Denny continue to advocate for attention to this problem of perpetual care and this problem of communicating with future generations. Because what if we don't find a solution that's satisfactory within 100 years? Signs can wear down. Language changes. How do we tell people in 500 years or 1,000 years that they need to stay away from this place? One idea has emerged from the Yellow Knives Dene, using oral traditions and storytelling to pass along the dangers of what awaits under the mine. Oral histories and legends can convey knowledge over hundreds and even thousands of years. You know, maybe this situation at Giant Mine is, is similar, where there's this some sort of malevolent force or being or beast underground, and that it's the people's job and responsibility to remember that and to, to work to help contain that beast. Because if it gets out, it can harm the community, it can harm the animals, it can harm the local environment. The monster under Giant Mine is still lurking there today. And we don't know yet if it'll ever go away. I think Giant Mine is an example of a mine that probably will end up having more costs associated with it than wealth that was derived by the public anyways. And it's been a whole host of problems and tragedies right from the very beginning. About 200 tons of gold were mined from Giant over the years. That's around $2.7 billion worth of gold during that time. Just the cost of cleaning up the arsenic could run higher than that. I think Giant Mine serves as an object lesson that the costs of mining, even though these gold mines, you know, the literal metaphor of a, I'm sitting on a gold mine, it's, it's riches, untold riches, but these places come with potentially considerable costs and costs that stretch into the unimaginable future. It's so insane how expensive it's going to cost Canadian taxpayers. And most of Canada doesn't even know about the mine, doesn't know the history of it, has no idea about the Yellowknife's Dene, might only know about Yellowknife because it's a capital city, but has no idea just how, how toxic it is. And that doesn't even bring into account the pain suffered by the Yellowknife's Dene and the men and women who worked the mine. 
It was only a finite amount of gold, and we're still dealing with the toxic effects of arsenic decades later, and we will forever. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. Know somebody who loves our podcasts? You can gift a subscription. Head over to canadaland.com slash gift and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Lee Selleck, Francis Thompson, France Benoit, the Giant Mind Monster Project by the Yellow Knives Diné First Nation, the Toxic Legacies Project, Jonathan Gatehouse, Jimmy Thompson, Ollie Williams and Emily Blake at Cabin Radio, the team at CBC News North, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, Arshi at Candleland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kieran Outshorn, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.